0: Boldly going where no science show has gone before. The Naked Scientists.
2: Hello, and welcome to the first episode of The Naked Scientists in 2009. And that's with Dr. Cat. Hello, Kat. Hello. Uh, Dr. Dave. Hi, Dave. Hi, Chris. And also with me, Chris Smith. Now, in this week's show, how scientists have found a way to give blind mice their sight back... How mosquitoes fall in love? Will us humans flutter our eyelids at each other, but these creatures flap their wings? And also we've got new insights into how cancers reprogram other tissues to help them to spread around the body. And that's all coming up shortly, Kat.
3: Thanks, Chris. Also this week, we're kicking off the new year with a bumper crop of your science questions, including finding out, and I love this one, whether an iPod becomes heavier when you load it with music, why are bikes easier to keep upright when they're moving, I have fallen off several stationary bicycles in my lifetime, and how do clouds generate lightning? The answers to all those are on the way.
4: Thanks, Kat. And in this week's Kitchen Science, I'll be showing you a funky trick with a drop of water. All you need is a piece of plastic, a drop of water and something
2: interesting to look at, like a sheet of printed paper. Thank you very much, Dave. That's Dave with Kitchen Science. Well worth having a go. An amazing observation to be made. So if you've got a question for us, though, you can email the programme on chris at thenakedscientist.com.
0: The Naked Scientist podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.net. This week,
2: scientists have published a paper in the journal Science where they have found out how mosquitoes tell each other that they fancy one another. Now, have a listen to this. That's a, that is a male mosquito buzzing its wings at something like 600 hertz, 600 times a second. Have a listen to the female mosquito, and these are Aedes aegypti mosquitoes. Here we go. Now, I won't subject you to too much more because Dr. Cat, Dr. Cat has got her fingers in her ears. But that's at about 400 hertz, so 400 times a second. The female is slightly slower than the male's. But if you do what two researchers at Cornell did, that's Lauren Cater and Ben Arthur, they put one of those mosquitoes tethered to a pin with a piece of superglue so they could keep it in one place, and they bring in a mosquito of the opposite sex and they record what happens to the wings of the two. Have a listen to this. And what's actually happening is that the two mosquitoes are adapting the beating frequency of their wings so that they harmonise. Now, they're not making their wings flap at exactly the same rate as each other. The female stays at her roughly 400 times a second rate, and the male stays at his roughly 600 times. But by getting them just right, because when you have multiples of a frequency, you get things called harmonics. And the first set of harmonics that are the same for these two are at 1,200 hertz. In other words, when you take the third harmonic of the female and the second harmonic of the male, you get something at 1,200 hertz. That's those beats you can hear going through that uh, rhythm. And the mosquito's antennae are very sensitive, it turns out, to vibration at 1200 hertz they have something called a johnston's organ and what this team of researchers did was to put wires into these mosquitoes antennae and record what actually happened when they heard those sounds and the activity shoots up and so the mosquitoes tune into each other synchronize their wing beats to send a message to each other that one is interested in the other and then they know that they can mate they get together and mate and then when they have mated something happens to the female because she loses interest in those sounds after that and the researchers were able to show that once a mosquito was mated she would know no longer respond at those sounds, and this is very important. the researchers point out because now we understand, in the words of Lauren Cater, partly what constitutes a sexy male mosquito because what they 're trying to do is to understand the mating habits of mosquitoes because At the moment, mosquitoes are probably the most dangerous animal on Earth because they spread one of the most fearsome diseases of all time, that's malaria, which affects 300 million people a year and also causes 3 million deaths. They also, if they're Aedes aegypti like these mosquitoes, they spread another disease called dengue, which is causing 50 or 60 million cases a year. So very important diseases. If we can understand how mosquitoes attract and mate with each other, we can try and make ways of blocking that process and therefore stopping them from transmitting these kind of infections. So very important work.
3: And one of the things I think is most fascinating about that paper is that previously researchers had just thought these mosquitoes were actually deaf, that males couldn't hear high frequencies and and female mosquitoes were totally tone deaf. And now they've discovered not only can they hear, but, you know, they can tune into each other. And they can also hear up to 2,000
2: hertz, so their antennae are very, very sensitive. And in fact, as uh, Lauren Cater put it to me, um, there are as many nerves that the mosquitoes are using to effectively hear with their antennae as we've got in our ears
3: fabulous stuff. Who knew mosquitoes were so complex? Uh, from one complex animal to a very complex disease and that's cancer. Nine out of ten cancer deaths are due to tumours that have spread from the original site, the primary tumour, to form secondary tumours in places like the lungs, the liver, the brain and scientists call this process metastasis and now new research from scientists in the US, the UK and Canada has revealed a very important molecule called LOX that's involved in metastasis and this could lead to new treatments for cancer. Now to explain why LOX is so important we need to backtrack a bit because secondary tumours these these metastases they don't just spring up anywhere and in the same way that if a gardener wants to spread seeds on the ground you need to have the right soil so seeds that fall on a a gravel path they're not really going to grow but seeds that fall in nice moist soil they'll grow and it's the same with cancer cells that spread around the body they need to find these nice little niches called pre metastatic niches that are formed by little bundles of cells from the bone marrow that sit in these little bundles and the can- they sort of make an environment that the cancer cells like and now Janine Erler and her colleagues have found that a protein called LOX helps to play an important role in forming these niches now LOX acts a bit like a, a master craftsman and it glues together the proteins that form the extracellular matrix or the jelly that holds cells together. And, uh, and they think that LOX is gluing together these proteins, attracting bone marrow cells, and therefore making the right kind of environment for cancer cells to spread into. And so the team showed that LOX was important by transplanting mice with normal breast cancer cells, and then breast cancer cells that had been genetically manipulated, so they didn't carry this LOX protein at all. And they found that these LOX-free cancer cells just didn't really spread. They couldn't make the changes uh, in the area to, to spread into. So this is really important because because... because it's not just mouse breast cancer cells. They found in 95 samples of secondary tumours from cancer patients with all types of cancer from breast, bowel, stomach and esophageal cancers. In more than half of these samples, there were high levels of locks and little clusters of these bone marrow cells, so potentially could be a good target for cancer drugs in the future.
2: It's amazing to think that a cancer cell in one part of the body is manipulating Or orchestrating the behaviour of whole clusters of tissues Elsewhere in the body And and making it possible for it to spread that way
3: They're incredible things They're they're almost like rogue organs tumours are They they manipulate the immune system They manipulate all these molecules To kind of get their own way And and get round the body's processes And and
2: one of the things we have to remember is of course Cancers have got the entire genetic repertoire of, of, of our body At their disposal And not just that but they can also rearrange genes Because they're genetically a bit messed up anyway And this means that they can make whole new proteins That do whole new jobs and that's why there's such a danger to the, to life because they completely t- contort your your biochemistry to whatever they want to do.
3: Exactly, they're they're evolving cells. They you know they have all these changes in them, and then under whatever pressure the body throws at them, they, they change again. It's uh, yeah, crazy things.
4: Do we know why your body has these clusters of bone marrow cells around the place normally? Well,
3: it's probably to do with that the, the tumour cells that are around they secrete these things like locks, and that causes changes. But then there there may be just these bone marrow cells in little groups, it's not really very well understood what prepares these pre-metastatic niches. Some of it might be from cancer cells, some of it might be there already, we don't really know.
2: Some people have suggested it's a repair process because if you do experiments on mice which have been manipulated so they make green glowing bone marrow cells and then you make, say, injuries in the skin then you see skin cells that are glowing green later. And what this suggests is that because the only cells in the body that glow green are bone marrow stem cells, probably stem cells come out of the bone marrow, they get recruited to the injured place, and they then turn into new cells at the injury site to help to make good a repair.
3: That's an intriguing link between cancer and long-term inflammation as well, that kind of thing.
4: OK, now onto to a completely different subject. The Spirit and Opportunity Mars rovers, which have recently celebrated their fifth anniversary on Mars, seem to have discovered a strange force which is pushing rocks around on the Martian surface. If you look at photos of the Martian surface, it's strewn with small rocks from the size of pebbles to cobbles. However, if you look at them, if, you, if they'd been thrown down on the ground, you'd expect some of them to, keep, to be touching, some of them to be a long way from others, but sort of randomly um, organised. But if you actually look at them on Mars, they're all about as far away from other rocks as they can get. It's as if they're repelling each other. Now, there is wind on Mars. The only thing which could be really moving them is the wind on Mars. But the wind, although it can get up really quite fast, tens of miles an hour, even hundreds of miles an hour, because there's only about one percent of the atmosphere on Mars than on Earth, there's not enough force there to actually move these quite large rocks.
2: So what are the things going on?
4: Well, John Pelletier from the University of Arizona seems to have worked out. He's got a really good theory. It's very similar to what happens if you've ever made a dam in a stream on a sandy beach using rocks. If you put a rock down in the stream, you'll find that the sand gets eroded around at the front of it and at the sides where the water speeds up to go around it. Um, and that certainly makes a hole. And eventually the rock sort of falls up upstream into that hole. And so the rock moves. Now, if you imagine two rocks on Mars, they're sitting next to each other and you've got wind blowing around them. There'll be sort of a sheltered area between them, so you'll tend to get sand depositing in that area between them. And uh, and when the wind splits to go around them, it'll speed up, so you get erosion on the, either side of them. So
2: they'll fall apart, they'll move away from each other. So you other.
4: get two holes dug and they fall apart and they slowly move away from each other and it's as if they're
2: repelling each other. So it's intriguing no to think there's wind. a sort of mathematical explanation for something like that, isn't
3: it? I wish they were like doozers on Mars. That would be brilliant. <laughs> it would be a lot
2: more fun, but <laughs> Thank you, Dave. That's an intriguing story. Thank you for that. Now, uh, an intriguing story as well this week, back here on Earth, is that scientists have uncovered how it is that the brain prioritises some of the things that are coming into the body and the sensory information that we're assailed with and deluged with every second of our lives. Now, this is Andy Parton, who's research researcher at Brunel University. He's got a paper in this week's journal, PNAS. And he's uncovered this intriguing rhythmic firing pattern that the brain uses to hide... Information in the information that we're processing. So in other words, if you're looking at a picture and you want to look at one bit of that picture, although there's information from the entire picture coming into your brain, your attention is focused on the bit you're looking at. Now part of that is because obviously the eye has the macula which has got far more information coming in in terms of detail to that bit you're looking at, but still you're able to ignore all the other things going on around you and just focus on that thing that you want your attention to be focused on. How do you do that? Well, it turns out that the brain adds this coding, which is a a rhythmic firing of nerve cells at 50 hertz, so about 50 times a second. And when you have that code hidden in the nerve signal, then the brain pays much more attention to the things that have got that code added to them. And what they did was to sit down a group of volunteers in front of a computer screen on which they had three circles with vertical lines on them. And one of the circles was flickering on and off. 30 times a second another at 50 times a second and the other was effectively not changing and what they asked the subjects to do was to look at these three circles side by side and to spot which one whenever the vertical lines got very slightly wider and what they found was that people were much much better at noticing when the lines got slightly wider in the circle flashing at 50 hertz than any of the others and when they asked the people can you see any of the circles flashing they couldn't so this was a totally subconscious effect so it shows that the brain has this ability to apply this code to processing information which prioritises that information but you don't just have to let the brain decide what's important you can actually hide that information in the sensory information that's coming in and so what this means is Advertising are we going to see much more arresting adverts in future where we 're going to be assailed with TV adverts you can 't take your eyes off because you, you, you can 't literally tear yourself away because they 're so infectiously interesting, or what about things like safety? cars for example, you could have warning signals, you could have road signs that are much better at catching your attention when they have to, but only when they have to to make driving more safe but also from a clinical perspective, and I asked Andy Parton this, there are various clinical syndromes where people have a problem paying attention to what's important and screening out what isn't. I'm thinking of things like attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. These people have a problem focusing on the important things and not being distracted. And at the same time, people who have strokes can get a a neglect syndrome where they might, for instance, ignore half their body. They don't realise it exists. They can't relate to half of their body. And he thinks that perhaps a better understanding of this system might help us to develop better ways to treat both of those problems.
4: The other interesting thing is that televisions update about once every, f- about 50 times a second. So I wonder whether that's part
2: of the reason why they're quite You've, so interesting. That's why you think TV is so compelling. Not just because it's strictly come dancing, Dave. You? you just think it's <laughs> it something, something to do with the electronics.
3: Be in it. I don't know. Uh, anyway, uh, this is a lovely story about um, not not three blind mice, but certainly blind mice. And we're often talking here on the Naked Scientists about research into stem cells, which could have the potential to treat many different diseases. And this is because you can persuade stem cells to take on the identity of a wide range of different cell types. And now researchers at the University of Washington in Seattle have used human embryonic stem cells to restore some sight, or at least responses to light, to blind mice. And the researchers were using Using mice that were lacking a gene called CRX, which means that basically they're, they're blind from birth as they don't develop proper photoreceptors. These are the cells that sense light. And they grew human embryonic stem cells in the lab. They treated them with certain chemicals and growth factors that encourage the stem cells to change towards being retinal cells. These are the cells that are found down the back of your eyeball that sense the light, send the message to the brain. And then the scientists injected these modified stem cells into the eyeballs of mice. And they found that the, the retinal cells from the stem cells settled into the back of the eyeball forming organized layers and then when they injected these cells into the eyes of crx deficient mice these blind mice they started to turn into photoreceptors and when the scientists tested the mice's responses to light they found that these new photoreceptors could respond to light flashes compared to eyeballs that hadn't been injected at all so from these mice they would show no response to light because obviously they don't have these photoreceptors and also the eyes that had the biggest areas of transplanted cells had the biggest responses to light showing that it's a definite effect of the transplant and so this is really really interesting because it suggests that at least in humans possibly human embryonic stem cells could be used to replace damaged photoreceptors and this could restore sight to people whose eyesight is damaged for example through macular degeneration or even to those who've been born blind I think it's a really exciting step forward.
2: It certainly is, because it tells you that... Uh, the signals are there in the tissue to tell those embryonic stem cells what to turn into and also how to wire themselves up correctly in order to work. Now obviously it's early days and these mice are not humans, so there's some way to go yeah, I mean, we have to be cautious yeah. here, but at the same time small steps and everything that's very encouraging.
3: Yeah, I mean they, they weren't seeing, you know, these mice couldn't see anything as such, but certainly getting a new response to light in mice that, that had absolutely none is, is really fantastic.
2: Thank you Kat. And also this week, scientists in Scotland have to Discovered that humans and probably many other animals make their own anti inflammatory chemicals. And the person who's made that discovery is Dr. Gwen Baxter, and she's from Dumfries and Galloway Royal Infirmary, and she's here to tell us a bit about her discovery. Hello, Gwen. Hello. Thank you for joining us on The Naked Scientist. So, what are the chemicals that uh, you've discovered that that humans make that that, are their own aspirin like agents?
5: Well, it's the finding that salicylic acid can be produced from benzoic acid, which hasn't been reported in in humans before.
2: Tell us a little bit about salicylic acid. What is it?
5: Okay, salicylic acid. It's a very simple compound. It's been around. Very simple molecule. It's been around for a long time. It's recorded as being used as a therapeutic agent from about 3000 BC when it was used to. Um, relieve pain, act as an anti-inflammatory agent, if you like, and to help reduce temperature, as in fever.
2: So if we have it in our body already, why do we need to take more of it?
5: Well, what we've discovered is that we seem to be able to produce it ourselves, and that's a novel thing that we're reporting, that previously we had assumed it was something that people took in, perhaps diet. Now we've found that it persists in people.
2: What do you think it's, it's actually doing in the people, though?
5: We're thinking it's a bit like considering your endorphins. I think people are familiar with that, that, that they can be upregulated. You know, you can increase the amount circulating should you require to do so um, in times of stress. And it's it's a very close sort of thinking to what happens with salicylic acid in plants because in plants it does act as a responder, if you like, to stress, such as attack by a pathogen. So um, we're saying that... Humans are possibly in a position to do the same thing because we've shown that we can produce it.
2: Now, you can make um, the same stuff from aspirin. In fact, when you put aspirin into the body, it eventually turns into salicylic yes. acid, doesn't yes. it? So, yes. do you think that what you've discovered is basically the, the way in which aspirin, or part of the way in which aspirin works, is achieved?
5: Well, I think I think uh, you've got to go back a wee bit. That um, salicylic acid was used for the things that um, aspirin is used for, except for the uh, effect that aspirin has on platelets and stops um, them sticking together, which is which is a therapeutic use of aspirin that salicylic acid doesn't have in the same way, although it does act as an anti-inflammatory.
2: How do you actually get the salicylic made in the body and does everyone make it and do some people have more than others?
5: Well, that's, that's another interesting thing. We, we've done lots of work over the years. We've, we've looked at people who, who obviously would have more salicylic acid in their body because they perhaps eat it, um, so obviously vegetarians and they do have higher levels. Um, no surprises there but we've we've also looked at people who have been fasting and they still maintain it so obviously it's not coming from diet which was sort of the starting point of where is it coming from and can we find it we're, we're thinking that if we can find the store for it it must be somewhere in the body or some precursor that, such as benzoic acid which is a product of lots of other metabolic pathways that we have already accorded in our body that um, it can be used as a bioregulator and help perhaps with some chemo protection. As for does everybody make it? Well, you know, we have to find that out and certainly in our work we've discovered that not everyone can metabolize the salicylic acid. So perhaps there is a relationship there to maybe gene expression again and I think the bottom line and that would be that it regulates biological systems and a lot of people are working currently on how very small amounts of this salicylic acid can actually modulate gene expression. So it may be that if you're good at making it, you're protected better than people who can't.
2: And maybe you have a lower risk of cancer. Gwen, we have to leave it there. Thank you very much. That was Dr. Gwen Baxter from Dumfries and Galloway Royal Infirmary.
0: Keeping you abreast of the world's best science, the Naked Scientists. This is The
2: Naked Scientist with Dr. Chris, Dr. Kat, and Dr. Dave. It's our science phone-in extravaganza. So if you have a science question for us, the email address for the programme is chris at We are, of course, live also in Second Life, where when we were talking about mosquitoes, Troy McLuhan said, it hurts, it hurts, ba-boom. And Pookie Amsterdam says, do we send out frequencies like this to make people get attracted to us? And the answer is yes, we do, because we speak to them. And scientists have shown that men who have deep voices tend to be more attractive to women. Who fancy men, obviously, and so voice is down to level of testosterone, the more testosterone you have, the lower your voice, and so it can be a sign of a well testosterogenized man and also, there was a study recently where they showed that women who are at their peak fertility tend to use higher tones in their voice than at other times of the month, and so women you speak with a high pitch when they 're more fertile, so this is maybe another subtle clue that women are giving away their fertility using to give away their fertility in So if you've got a question for us, do send them in. Kat.
3: Well, it's now time for our kitchen science and we have an experiment here that is apparently hundreds of years old, but it explains something that every time we see in the modern day, when we polish a TV set, when we use a mobile phone in the rain, or that old chestnut sneezing on your computer monitor. So Dave, what is this all about and what do we need to do?
4: Okay, this is a really, really simple kitchen science. All you need is a little bit of water um, a bit of plastic, the kind of clear plastic which you sometimes get in packaging or in the, inside of a lemonade bottle, that sort of stuff. That
3: looks like the, the tray from some pork pies or something. Yeah, you've got that's that. a, I think it's actually yeah. a tray
4: from some, some posh, rather nice biscuits I got over Christmas. Not
3: pork pies.
4: Not pork pies. OK,
3: what do we do with our, our pork pie tray?
4: OK, so basically you want to cut a piece out of this pork pie tray, sort of maybe a couple of centimetres wide, four or five long. Okay. So I'll just do that quickly.
3: Again, all blue pizza, yeah. Uh,
4: I haven't got one I made earlier. <laughs> okay, so we've got this bit of plastic. Yep. And then all you need to do is get a little bit of water on the end of your finger. Or so maybe it must be
3: clear plastic, clear so you can plastic, see through it. Yeah, yeah.
4: see through plastic. Um, get a blob, put a sort of blob of water on the end. If it isn't very round, like the one I just did, try, keep trying until you get a nice circular blob of water. That one's not too bad. Okay, you've got,
3: yeah, so a nice little round, that's about. Half a centimetre in diameter. Yeah, so sort of five or six millimetres is a good yeah. one to
4: start with. Um, then look look at things through it. Basically, you get, so you might have to get your eyes very close to it. So I'm try, try getting your eyes very close to it and very close to an object. Put it quite close to an object and have a look through it and if anything interesting happens, give us a ring.
3: Right, well, let's see what you can see through your bit of pork pie tray and water, and we'll get Dave to explain later what's going on and what this has to do with sneezing on your monitor uh, later on the show.
2: Thank you, Kat, and don't forget that uh, on our website we put down all the references and the full transcript of this programme every single week, nakedscientist.com, so if there's anything you want to check out or any of the research you've been hearing about so far in the programme, you can find it there. Coming up, we'll be visiting the Milton Keynes snow zone where Mira went to get totally frozen to find out how they actually make the snow so she could go for a bit of skiing. But we are, of course, answering your questions too. And Kat got this one here from Brian, who says, Yo, Naked Scientists, I was cleaning the roof of my garage sweeping fallen leaves and branches away and there was all this decomposing matter there that had reached critical mass which was making some soil on the roof and as I cleaned it off I was surprised to find healthy earthworms in the soil how did they make it up there? Well,
3: this is an interesting one, but my prime suspect in this case would be birds. Um, there is some evidence that worms can crawl, but I doubt that big earthworms can crawl that far. I reckon that something like a bird has got mud on its beak or is maybe carrying another earthworm or something like that that's got mud on it that's got tiny earthworm eggs, and they've got deposited up there. And because, you know, it's a nice environment, if it's nice and damp, you've got soil, uh, organic matter up there, then those dropped Worm cocoons, the the eggs in a little kind of bundle have, have just started to grow. So I reckon they've been dropped up there by birds.
2: I agree because when I was little, I got into trouble with my parents for putting a worm in my brother's hair, which I absolutely did not do. And because he, he reached into his hair and there was this worm in there, and I got oh. told off for it. But actually, a bird had just gone over, and I think the bird dropped the worm on my brother's head. Could I, have I been didn't worse. do it. Honestly, <laughs> I didn't do it. So I, th- I think I, I thoroughly agree with you. Dave, got a question here from Jim who says, Why does a bike stay up so much more easily when it's moving? It's very hard to balance when the bike isn't actually moving.
4: It is very hard to balance when a bike stationary. Um, there's two effects. Um, one of them is that basically, if you tip a if the if bike tips over to the left, you'll see that the front wheel tends to tit turn into the left as well basically just because of the way because the front forks are leaning forwards so it's more stable if the um handlebars tip to the left so once the handle when the handlebars tips are left then you tend to steer into the corner and then the the wheel kind of works its way back underneath you so if the bike so if you sort of fall off the bike then the bike comes underneath you so it's
2: like if i give you a the old trick of a broom handle and you you can balance a broom handle in the palm of your hand, but just by moving your hand around, you can hold the broom handle vertically. It's because whenever the broom starts to fall in one direction, you move your hand to go effectively into the direction of fall, and that's what keeps it stable, and the bike's doing the same thing.
4: The bike's doing the same thing automatically. There is also a gyroscopic effect, which can help, but you don't need a gyroscopic effect, but it does help.
2: Yes, because the wheels are spinning, and so because the wheels are themselves turning, they have a gyroscopic moment, so it's obviously difficult to make it deviate, but then... Mm given that it's most unstable when it's moving slower probably and yet you can still balance yeah yeah, that's probably more minimum isn't it you'd probably get more stable as you speed up wouldn't you
4: um you do and it is a lot easier to um, ride when you're going faster um yeah basically what's happening is if you imagine a spinning top um when it starts to fall over it sort of starts to rotate round and round in circles um the same thing happens to your bike wheel if as it starts to turn over it starts to rotate and it turns in into the corner as well
2: Thank you, Dave.
3: I am legendarily famous for
2: falling off stationary bicycles. Why don't you try riding them along then? then?
3: Well, (laughs) it's usually under the influence of uh, of, uh, ethanol. Um, Anyway, we've got a question for you, Chris, from uh, from John in Orange County, who wants to know, how do clouds form electricity for lightning? How is the energy stored or is it dynamically generated?
2: Well, actually, the answer is we don't 100% know. But clouds are made of billions and billions and billions of tiny particles, ice crystals, they're called hydrometeors. And these particles rub against each other in the cloud because the clouds are full of currents of air. And there are big ones and small ones. And in exactly the same way as if you take a balloon or a comb and run it through your hair, you will transfer charge from one thing, your hair, to the balloon or the comb. And this enables you to have static electricity. The same thing happens with these particles in the cloud. And by a mechanism that no one understands that well... For some reason the small ones get a negative charge, sorry the big ones get a negative charge and the small ones get a positive charge and the small ones get pushed to the top of the cloud under up currents more than the bigger ones so that's why you get this charge distribution within the cloud. Some people speculate it might be something to do with the solar wind, which is this charged stream of particles coming from the sun past the Earth's magnetosphere. Um, But that aside, what you end up with is a big aggregation of static energy within the cloud, which is separated according to its charge. The bottom of the cloud is very, very negative. The Earth, therefore, feels an electric field pushing effectively towards it, and this repels any negative charge in the surface of the Earth because the negatives can move away, leaving the surface of the Earth net positive. This obviously intensifies the electric field and the result is that eventually the potential difference that builds up overcomes the natural insulation or the inherent resistance of the air and it begins to ionise. This is where you strip electrons away from gas molecules in the atmosphere and because electrons can move, they can conduct, you begin to carry a current so you'll get a few feelings. Come down, and then when you've got it a sufficient and contiguous connection between cloud and ground, you'll get the full on strike. And yeah, it comes zipping down. The actual discharge is only about the size of a five pence piece, and it lasts for billionths of a second, microseconds, if at best, I think. And the actual current that flows down it is something like 20,000 amps. And it's discharging between 1 and 10 billion joules of energy, which is in fact enough to light a 100 watt light bulb for about 100 days, so it's not a huge amount but it's enough to make a big big bang, obviously. And the reason that the lightning's nice and bright is because as that electricity goes smashing through the air, it causes the uh, electrons to get very, in, in the atoms to get very excited. They then fall back to their original energy positions, giving out some light in the process, but they also get very, very hot. And because of the thermal expansion, you get a shockwave, it's like a gun going off, and that's the thunder that you hear later. So that's a sort of snapshot of how lightning forms, and it's all down to these particles in clouds. Dave. Um, well, I, thought, I thought you were going to say like, something. No, sorry, I, mean, <laughs> I, thought, I thought you were going to ask something. I've got a question for Cat. otherwise. Oh, yeah. And um, this is from William Isdale, who says why do you get white blooms on refrigerated chocolate? I was recently given a block of chocolate for Christmas from a friend and to avoid it melting as it's currently summer here in Australia where he is, I put it in the fridge I finally got around to eating it today, when I unwrapped it I noticed there were white spots all over the place
3: Now I've been doing a lifetime of research into chocolate. Most um, of it practical Yes, exactly, <laughs> practical science into chocolate and um, yes, you're right, bloom on chocolate, this kind of white stuff you see on it, is not harmful um, you get two types of bloom on chocolate you get cocoa butter bloom, which is when the cocoa butter comes to the surface of the chocolate and you can tell if you've got cocoa butter bloom because it kind of feels a bit oily and greasy or you can get sugar bloom and that's when sugar crystals come out of your chocolate and that feels kind of granular but what's causing it well chocolatiers think that what causes bloom is when you get temperature changes big changes in temperature to chocolate Um, so for example as it's been hot in Australia and now you've put your chocolate that's been in a hot place into the fridge to keep it cold you've put it through quite a big temperature differential and then got it back out of the fridge again so that's caused the bloom um, and it's probably best just to try and keep your chocolate at a cool stable temperature not necessarily in the fridge and that'll uh, keep it nice and hopefully non-bloomy
2: thank you cap This is The Naked Scientist and if you'd like to do some practical chocolate eating then we'd love to hear your experiences but we'd also love your science questions. If you've got anything you'd like us to solve for you the email address for The Naked Scientist is chris at thenakedscientist.com and we'll be hearing from Jack in Corby very shortly who wants to know why rockets don't burn up on their way up. Maybe you can help us, tell us what you think. And also Les in Barry St Edmunds says I've always understood that by wearing a hat you keep heat in but I read an article in the paper yesterday saying it's a myth. What do you think?
0: Laying the facts bare, I say, The Naked Scientists.
3: This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith, Kat Arnie, and Dave Ansell. And it's been snowing here in the UK a little bit, well, a little bit where I am. Uh, and that's not something that happens very often. And most of us imagine snow, you think of bright white mountains, the Alps, the Rockies, swishing down and going and having the apro ski afterwards. But um, we don't have that kind of money here on The Naked Scientists uh, to go on piste. And in fact, we've sent Mira Senthilingam to go and find out in Milton Keynes how you make snow in the UK.
6: Yes, it is the season that many of us decide to go skiing to various resorts around the world, but this week I'm at a place that you can ski that's in the UK and also inside. I'm at the Milton Keynes Snow Zone, part of the Escape Adventure Complex in Buckinghamshire. Now in front of me there are three snow slopes, two of which are up to 173 metres long and 20 metres wide. The best bit is that all of these slopes are actually made of real snow. But what does it actually take to create the snow that's in here and fill basically a big dome like this with tonnes and tonnes of snow? Well, here to tell me all about it is Richard Shears, who's the facilities manager here at Snow Zone.
7: Uh, the temperature at the moment, Mary, is uh, minus 2, minus 3 degrees. Up above us are some large radiators. Uh, within the radiators there are six large fans. These fans blow air across the radiator and uh, the radiator is cooled down to minus 16 degrees with an antifreeze mixture inside there. Yeah. When we're running at full capacity at 100% fans, oh. um, it will chill the air down to probably minus 6 uh, degrees, and that's the temperature that we make the snow up.
6: Can you just describe the actual structure here of the slope?
7: Yeah, underneath the snow is uh, a large concrete slab stretching from the base of the slope right up to the top of the slope. The concrete slab is covered with an insulating material, and on top of the insulating material is uh, lines and lines of 20 mil pipes, and these 20 mil pipes contain the antifreeze mixture, which is cooled down to minus 16 degrees. Which, when we run water over the pipes, it freezes and gives us a depth of ice down to probably 30 to 40 mil thick of ice, or ice layer underneath the snow.
6: Okay, so now to find out how the snow is actually made, we're going to head up to the snow bar, which is on the second floor and looks out over the snow slope, so we can actually see the sprayers that the snow is created from. So let's head up there now, because I actually can't feel my fingers at the moment. Now, Richard, you create up to 1,500 tons of snow here, all with these sprayers that seem to be located at different positions around the room. How do these actually go about creating the snow?
7: The snow is created by using high pressure water and air which runs through what we call a snow gun. The water and the air are broken up into fine particles then blown out at high pressure into the atmosphere of the ski box. When the mixture hits the atmosphere it freezes into a fine snowy mist which lands onto the ground which forms real snow.
6: What other conditions need to be maintained to just get the maximum snow created here?
7: During the night, we can drop the temperature of the ski box down to minus 6, 7 degrees, providing the humidity is right in the box. We can make the snow at that temperature. Obviously, uh, the higher that you can drop the uh, snow from the snow guns, the longer it has to form, the better the snow can be made.
6: But how does this actually compare to the snow we get outside? Is it the same?
7: The structure of the snow is a little bit different. Where you have nice snowflakes outside and they're allowed to form, can probably fall from 30,000 feet, and we're, we're falling from 40 to 50 feet. The ice crystal doesn't have that time to, to actually form and grow. Outside, every snowflake that you get is different. If you put them under a microscope, you see the shapes all different. In the snow we get here, because it's a controlled environment, it's an ice crystal that comes out, but they're all formed in the same structure.
6: And what do the um, actual crystals look like? Are they quite spherical then?
7: Yeah, they're, they're round. If you put them under a microscope, they're all uniform, they're all they're all round. Yeah.
6: Thank you very much, Richard. Thank you, Mira. We've been talking about this snow so much now, and I can just see all these skiers out in front of me that I really need to go and try it out for myself.
3: So it's possible to practice your skiing without paying hundreds to go abroad and thanks to really cold buildings and really high pressure water vapour. And there's going to be a few more real snow slopes like this all over the country and that was Mira Senthalingham talking to Richard Shears from the snow zone in Milton Keynes. Now Dave, remind us about this kitchen science.
4: It's really simple all you need to do is get a piece of transparent plastic, one of the ones which is kind of stiff but still flexible, kind of thin stuff you get in packaging quite often. Get a little blob of water, maybe five or six millimetres across, put it on the end of the plastic, hold it and then and have a look at something with it. Basically, get, try getting it really close, a bit further away. Get, change the
2: distances and see what you can see. So there you go. That's Dave's kitchen science challenge for this week. What do you see? Tell us. Our email address is chris at thenakedscientists dot com. Ian's in Essex. Hello, Ian.
0: Hello there, Chris.
2: What can we do for you?
0: Uh, chris, why does uh, one get uh, cramp?
2: Well cramp is a muscle spasm Ian And we don't actually know what cramp is We just know that if people have regular cramps And it tends to happen quite often at night And it tends to happen in older people more than younger people And it tends to be relieved with quinine The same stuff that makes tonic water taste very nice So a muscle spasm is when some of the muscle fibres, because a muscle isn't just one homogeneous giant thing, it's actually made up of lots of individual little muscle fibres, some of those muscle fibres go into a spasm, in other words they contract more than they should, and they lock in a contracted state. Now surprisingly, muscle actually takes energy to relax, not to contract, and when a person dies, they go into rigor mortis, because the Cells in their muscles run out of energy and the muscles can't relax and therefore they stay rigid and that's why a person gets rigor mortis but if you leave them a bit longer then the rigor mortis goes away again when the muscle breaks down and starts to relax. So what cramp could be is for some reason that that clutch of of muscle fibres don't have enough energy in them perhaps because there's been a reduction in blood flow that's insufficient for the muscle's needs and therefore the muscle runs a little bit short of energy and this causes it or trips it into this inability to relax properly and you get a cramp and rubbing a muscle and massaging it to get the blood flowing back through it and get rid of waste products can make that better so great question and thanks for calling us now also on the line we've got uh, Jack is in Corby we're coming to him very shortly but before then Simon sent us a text message probably one for you Dave he says good evening why does my car windscreen mist up only when it rains and is there any way of stopping that from happening?
4: Okay, what's happening when your car windscreen mists up is basically um, you've got lots of moisture in the air inside your car. and then if the car windscreen is cold enough, then the, it'll be below the dew point, so below the temperature at which that moisture can condense on it, and so you get water condensing on the on the windscreen um, until eventually you get little droplets and they make it very hard to see through. Now there's various things which could affect this. One of them is the amount of moisture in the air, so if, you've got to, uh, if it's raining it's probably very humid, and also you're probably wet, so you're probably heating up and evaporating water off you, so it makes the air very, very moist. And the other big one is how cold the glass is, and if it's raining then the rain's probably hitting the glass and taking a lot of energy out of it and cooling it down so probably two reasons one is that there's more moisture in the air and the other one is that the glass is cooled down
2: thank you david just responding to the cramp question zanzibar rothschild says bananas are good for muscle cramps could it be down to potassium Could be, but I don't know for sure. I know that if you don't have enough potassium, then you can end up with uh, excitable cells in that way, and this can lead to muscle spasms. So that's a possibility. Also, Vangar Train if I hope I said that right, says, "What about spasms that occur all over the body when some people fall asleep?" But I think you're thinking of what's called a hypnic jerk. Uh, When people fall asleep, and you can notice this yourself, um, just as you're nodding off, you suddenly jerk violently, and often enough to wake you up again, and certainly wake up anybody who's sleeping next to you. And if you're on a bus with somebody you don't know, and it scares the hell out of them, um, because I've done that to people. And this is a hypnic jerk and it's to do with the part of the nervous system that paralyses you when you go to sleep because when we go to sleep and we dream you don't want to be acting out your dreams because that could have unfortunate consequences so there's a region of the nervous system, it's called the subcerulea region in your brainstem, which receives information about when you're going to dream and it also has the ability to switch off the flow of motor systems going down to your spinal cord so it can paralyse your body when you go to sleep. So when you're going to sleep and you're switching in this system sometimes it gets a bit carried away and you get these jerks as the system is turning on and those are hypnic jerks and that's why that happens now dave quick question from jack in corby i think this is definitely one for you um jack hello hello what what would you like to ask dave
4: just to uh, finish off what i heard earlier uh, about the cramps actually i've always found the best remedy is to put your hands below your body whatever a situation you're in you know what I mean? Sitting down or whatever. Put your hands below your body or run them under hot water. And, and, and I think that gets the circulation going.
2: But what about if your cramp is in your ankle?
4: And that's a very good point. I, I have no idea about
2: that. Now tell us about this space rocket question though, Jack.
4: Yes. One what is, what goes up must come down, as they say. Why do space shuttles and the like, rockets and whatnot, go up without resistance into the upper stratosphere and yet come back? you know, with resistance and, you know, have heat shields and stuff like that. OK, meteors, you know, uh, experience the same thing and stuff like that. But why why does that happen? So basically, why does uh, a space rocket burn up? for It, it seems to be trying to overheat and burn up on the way down, but not the way up. Well, basically, on the way, it's all to do. The amount of heat you're generating is going to be to do with how fast you're going and how thick the atmosphere is. So the thicker the atmosphere and the faster you're going, the more heat you generate. Um, on the way up, although space rockets will go several times the speed of sound, and they do get some heating on the way up, it's not that much, because they're going fairly slowly while they're near the ground where the air's really thick, and by the time they get going very fast, they're up into much thinner air, so there's much less heating. On the way down, they're going really fast, and they're still going very fast, but th- they're going really fast through the thin air, and as if the air gets thicker and thicker and thicker, they've still got lots of energy.
2: So the problem is reversed,
4: basically? Well, it's not quite reversed, but they, they're still going fa- faster, high up and down, but they're still going very fast when they're, when they're fairly low down, there's a lot more heating, so they get very very hot
2: yeah because the, the escape velocity is, is 13,000 14,000 um, miles an hour or something yeah. ridiculous isn't very it? So, very
4: very fast um, and so they have
2: to have a way of dissipating that and, heat. and
4: they can't dissipate all that energy in the upper atmosphere so they've got to dissipate it lower down there's more air there so you're going to get more friction
3: We've had a a quick text in here from Mark in Bletchley, which I'm assuming is about the mosquito buzzing story that we had earlier. And he said, my ex-missus definitely hit the high notes normally when she was telling me off. Uh, Thanks very much for that, Mark. We've got a question here from um, Israel in the USA. He wants to know, why is urine usually yellow? Is it usually yellow in most species, just mammals? Um, You know, it's mostly water. So why is it yellow?
2: The yellow colour is because of the stuff that makes your blood red. Um, When we break down dead red blood cells which last about 120 days, the haemoglobin, this is a protein which has got an iron atom at the centre, that protein gets broken down into something called bilirubin and bilirubin is dumped out of the body by the liver. The liver metabolises the bilirubin a bit by adding some sugar to make it dissolve in water puts it into bile and your bile then gets squirted into your small intestine to help you to reabsorb fats. But the bilirubin, because it has some sugars stuck on it, becomes broken down by bacteria. And the bacteria metabolise the molecule and they turn it into something which is called urobilinogen. And urobilinogen gets reabsorbed in the, further down the small intestine. And unlike bilirubin, which is not very soluble in water, urobilinogen is very soluble in water, but they're both a brown colour. So the urobilinogen goes round in your bloodstream again, but when it goes through your kidney, because it's soluble in water, it moves out through the kidney in the same way as the other things that go into urine do. And it therefore goes into your urine, and because your urine is a concentrate of plasma, you would take water back but leave the products that have got filtered behind, then it builds up in the urine and adds this brown colour, and so urine goes darker and darker and darker and the more dehydrated you are the less you've had to drink the darker it is because the concentration of that's higher
3: i think also there may be a bit of it that's riboflavin as well because if you take uh, lots of b vitamins like barocca and things like that um because they're water soluble if you have too many you just wee them out and um and i think riboflavin when it's dissolved in water is very yellow as well so that may be part of it too
2: the, the majority is um is eurobilinogen. I, I can absolutely swear, I can swear <laughs> by that one I, 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 Yeah, I can swear by that one It is The Naked Scientist with Dr Chris, Dr Dave and Dr Kat We're taking all your science questions for you And if you'd like to ask us anything You can email the programme by emailing chris at thenakedscientist.com Coming up we'll be looking at this week's question of the week To find out whether life ever arrived on Earth from outer
0: space Lifting the lab coats on the world's best science The Naked Scientists.
2: This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith, Dave Ansell and Kat Arney.
0: And now it's time
3: to welcome Diana O'Carroll to the studio. For a, She certainly doesn't look like an alien today. Uh, <laughs> what have you got for us
8: with our question of the week? I've put my antennae away. Well, this week, is there life on Mars?
2: Hello, my name is John Wilson. I live in Zeist in the Netherlands, near Utrecht. And my question this week is, related to something that I heard previously on the Naked Scientists um, was to do with lots of rubbish falling to earth from outer space and I wondered whether they'd found any life in the rubbish that falls to earth.
8: So can we expect a tentacled fossil from outer space anytime soon? I'm Dr. Vic Pearson from the Open University. The
1: likelihood of finding life in meteorites is probably pretty slim. There was, in the 1990s, um, a big debate on whether or not NASA scientists had identified nanobacteria, so very, very small bacteria, only identifiable using very powerful microscopes, in meteorites that had actually come from the surface of Mars. But this has pretty much been debunked now. However, that's not to say that the building blocks of life may not have been brought to Earth from meteorites, because meteorites themselves contain biogenic elements such as sulfur, nitrogen, oxygen, phosphorus, but also carbon-based molecules or organic molecules which are required for life on Earth and elsewhere in the solar system. These are things such as amino acids, carboxylic acids, sugars, hydrocarbons, all of which make up living systems on the Earth and all of which are the backbone of the organic molecules that make up our own DNA. So the chances of being able to find life elsewhere in the solar system is also a lot stronger by the fact that you can find these organic molecules there. But whether or not you can actually get life itself from meteorites is probably very unlikely.
8: So, as yet, there's no sign of life in our meteorite collection, but we'll just have to watch this space for more evidence to land in our back gardens. On our forum, your underscore on also said that some of the building blocks, for life at least, had been found in meteorites. Carsten speculated that perhaps any life forms had, on impact, jumped off the rocks and run away. I've
2: been out with a few of them.
8: <laughs> Bad club lighting. Anyway, next week I'll be tackling another mystery set in stone. Hi, this is
1: Aaron in Austin, Texas, and my question concerns petrified wood. I've heard stories of wooden fence posts becoming petrified over time, but I'm not sure that this is scientifically possible. So can you please tell me, how is petrified wood formed,
8: and what exactly does it consist of? And you can put the answers on our forum, that's where there's lots of discussion, answers and questions, at the naked scientist.com forward slash forum or send them to chris at the naked scientist.com and tell us what this scared form of timber is all about.
2: Thank you very much to Diana O'Carroll for this week's Question of the Week. And you can also get Question of the Week as its own podcast if you happen to love Question of the Week that much. There's about 50 of them on iTunes and also from our website now. You just search for Question of the Week. This is The Naked Scientist with Dr Chris, Dr Dave and Dr Kat. Dr Dave's kitchen science experiment is coming up very shortly where he asked you to put a blob of water on a piece of perspex and then look through it at a surface. What do you see? Also, if you've got any science questions for us, the email address is chris at thenakedscientist.com.
0: Bringing the facts to bear. The Naked Scientists.
2: It's The Naked Scientist with Dr Chris, Dr Dave and Dr Kat. Got a question here for you, Dave. Uh, Richard Poulton says, Does my iPod get heavier when I add more music to it? I suppose presumably it would if you added heavy metal, wouldn't it?
4: I'm not sure how much it depends on the type of music. Um, OK, there's the only way, I think the, way, the only way that actually adding music to your iPod could increase its um, mass, could be if you were somehow increasing the energy of it. Now, the way especially modern iPods tend to store um, store music is in what 's called flash memory, and this has lots of little tiny cells in, inside it, and it, you tend to trap a few electrons, maybe a few hundred electrons in a little um, gap in a little space, and then that affects how current will flow through a wire and so you can read it again um, now this is going this is going to store some energy, but a minuscule amount and probably like uh, a thousandth of a joule the most inside the whole of your iPod, if you even filled it, filled it completely with music. And that's only for the ones, so the zeros wouldn't be storing any of that, so, so only half of that amount. Um, so And that extra energy equals mt squared will increase the mass ever so slightly, but, the, but that's a tiny amount, and that's far less than the increase in mass of the battery when you charge up the battery, which is also far less than the amount of uh, mass you'd get from putting a greasy fingerprint on the top
2: of it. So the answer is yes. If you do actually put some energy into the iPod, if whatever you do to it means it gains some energy because Einstein says E equals MC squared, it has to gain some mass, but whatever happens, the amount is going to be absolutely tiny. Yep. Thank you, Dave. Cat question here from Brenda Herbert who says, is it true that adult cancers, when they present, are all late stage? In other words... By the time you've detected a cancer has it been growing in you for more than 10 years and probably already spread somewhere else?
3: Absolutely not at all because then screening wouldn't work uh, things like the breast screening and the bowel screening that we have now. Um, some cancers yes often when they're found they are advanced and that's why the government's trying to do a lot through an in- initiative called the National Early Detection and Awareness Initiative to try and catch cancers earlier but in many cases for example bowel cancers you can spot them when they're just a little polyp uh, you can take it away and you know that that cancer will not have grown anywhere in the the case of breast cancers breast screening picks up very small tumours that really haven't spread far so um, it's not necessarily true for all types of cancers that you know they will have spread uh, around the place Uh, certainly not.
2: Can I just ask you though um, which might be what Brenda was getting at which is could it be that um, she means cancer being a multi-stage process where you slowly build up and acquire changes to your DNA which eventually mean you get cancer and you could have spent a lifetime building up those changes inevitably you have and so therefore you're on your way to cancer all the way through your life but it's only latterly that you finally can call it cancer
3: well that's kind of true because we do pick up all sorts of damage to our DNA just in the, the hurly-burly of life within our cells and um, and cancer is a disease that usually takes a very long time to happen. Um, there is also an idea that we do just you know everyone has tiny tiny little cancers all over us but it's our immune system that's constantly patrolling our bodies and keeping these under control and what happens when cancer really starts to grow is that it's started to somehow evade this immune suppression and really start going for it and there's a lot what we don't really understand about how cancer really gets going, how it interacts with the immune system.
4: got a quick question for you here, Chris from Brianna, uh, which is why do we get
2: goosebumps and chills and things when we're scared, especially if someone starts talking about ghosts? Okay, well, goosebumps or goose pimples are. The bulges caused by your piloerector muscles, these are the muscles that make your hair stand on end. Now, in other animals, like mice, cats, dogs, making your hair stand on end is a good thing, because if you're cold, you trap more air next to your body and this thermally insulates you. If you're scared, it makes you look much bigger. And if you look much bigger, then you're scarier to other animals, and they're less likely to attack you. Now we're obviously derived and, and related to all these other mammals that do this. Um, we just have less hair, so it doesn't serve a very useful purpose in us. It's just a sort of evolutionary vestige, really. I would I would say that's probably the most sensible way to say
3: now let's find out what we're doing in this kitchen science so we had a piece of transparent pork pie tray uh, put a tiny round drop of water on it and we're looking closely through it at something so dave what should we be seeing so
4: have a look at have a look at okay. this this, this our script here okay
3: um, so i've got my script i've got a piece of plastic and i'm holding it right up my eye right up to the blob and right on there oh my goodness so like the letters i can see through the drop of water the letters are really really big like, like it's magnified them?
4: Yeah, basically we've built a magnifying glass. Out of uh, just
3: water and just, some port pie tray? <laughs>
4: just out of water and a port pie tray, that's right, Kat. How uh, does that work then? OK, basically light goes a little bit slower in water than it does in air. Um, and if you imagine a car, a car will go slower over sand than, than the road. So if you're driving on a road and your left-hand wheel goes into the sand, it'll slow down and turn in towards the sand turn you around a corner so basically uh, when the light hits the water it's going to turn around a corner as it enters it and when it leaves it'll speed up again and then turn back again and because it's curved that means the light ends up bent and it just so happens with a smooth curve with a droplet of water like that it um, bends the light in such a way as it makes it look like there's a bigger object there than there should than there actually is so
3: it's acting like a lens really it, like a tiny little lens
4: it is a tiny little lens in In fact, these were the first really good quality microscopes which were built by a guy called Anthony van Leeuwenhoek. Um, We had a little brass plate and had a little tiny, almost spherical glass lens, very likely a droplet of water in the middle of it and by looking, it's quite difficult to use to get really high magnifications, but he managed to get a magnification about 200 times, get very, very up, close up to things, and he actually was the first person to see bacteria. First person to see microbes. Um, in about 1683 he was looking very closely at some of the plaque from one of his mate's teeth
2: <laughs> and saw sort of little creatures
4: like swimming around in it. Um, unfortunately, he didn't associate it with disease um, and it took another couple of hundred years um, until Louis Pasteur in the 19th century worked this out. So it was about 200 years uh, and no one really believed him that he'd seen these things because it was very difficult to use this microscope.
3: Now, earlier we were talking about um, when I sneezed on the monitor and it kind of looks funny. If you sneeze on a computer monitor, you get little droplets of water. Is, is that the same thing that's exactly going on here? Exactly
4: the same thing. Here? I'll blob some water on. Don't tell the BBC. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, you can see it kind of looks... Weird under where the droplets. are. You can see are.
4: little, multi, almost little rainbows under the droplets. Mm. Um, what's going on here is that you're basically magnifying the um, screen quite large, maybe a factor of ten or twenty. Especially if you get very small droplets, and what you've ma- in, in, on a screen there's three different colours: there's red, green, and blue, and there's different amounts of those colours um, add up to give all the colours in the rainbow. And so basically you're magnifying little blobs of red, green and blue and you can actually see the separate ones. Yeah,
3: you can see them, can't you? A little, I've got little stripes in there. That's why
4: everything goes rainbow when you sneeze on your monitor.
3: <laughs> I would have thought that. Fascinating. So if you found that at home or if you found unusual magnifying glasses anywhere else, do uh, write in a letter us know. It's chris at thenakedscientist.com.
2: Yeah, I was just thinking, I wonder if you actually would see, do a modern-day equivalent of that and see bacteria in the snot that you sneeze out and nah. MRSA and ah. God knows what. I'm afraid to report, guys, we've run out of time. So thank you very much to everyone who has contributed to this week's Naked Scientist Science phone-in. Next week, we are turning to the problem of the post-Christmas bulge. We're looking at obesity, but we're looking specifically at the genes that can make you become obese and also looking at the question of how what you eat can affect the baby that grows inside a pregnant woman because uh, there's a phenomenon called epigenetics where you can change the expression of genes based on the health of a mother, and we'll be finding out how... What you eat can have impacts on your baby. Join us next week if you can.
0: The Naked Scientist podcast comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by The Welcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com. Thinking about your next career move in research and development?